Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Made Shark with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Glenn Scrivener. He is an author, an evangelist, uh, a podcast host, a host of the Speak Life podcast and also a new podcast called Post-Christianity. He's the author most recently of the book The Air We Breathe, uh, which is about the Christian roots of uh, Western moral ideas. We spoke about that at length. We started by talking about Ayan Hershey Ali's recent conversion to Christianity, the responses to it. Uh, then we spoke about the conflict between progressivism and Christianity, particularly on issues of abortion and euthanasia. And then in the extended part of the episode, we spoke about Jordan Peterson's work on the Bible. Uh, and what church leaders can learn from his example. That extended version of the episode can be found at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find the back catalogue of paywalled episodes, the bonus episodes I, re- I record fortnightly with my husband, and also the MMM chat community. Remember, Made Mother Matriarch is a subscriber-supported show. I am entirely dependent on your generosity in the form of paid subscriptions to keep the camera running, keep the lights on. So any support that you can offer would be enormously appreciated so that we can keep producing the podcast. Enjoy. So Glenn, we're talking uh, a couple of weeks after um, Ian Hershey-Ali's piece in Unheard, which I think was titled Why I'm Now Christian, which has been the source of um, a lot of discussion um some of it I thought quite annoying <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and, and and I wondered what you made of it because I'm I was I I actually thought of you as I was reading it and I thought I'm sure Glenn is going to have Glenn is going to have views on this because it's a very it's a very in, it, the thing that's really interesting about the piece about her piece which of course doesn't necessarily portray the entirety of her reasons for conversion or her own sort of emotional relationship with Christianity or anything um, is that she puts a lot of emphasis on the sort of cultural achievements of Christianity and much less emphasis on her own um, personal emotional pull towards it yeah yeah so I really feel for Ayan because like she has been a part of the only three religions in the history of the world that have ever cared about whether people leave them or join them. (laughs) And her entire life story has been either leaving or joining the only three religions in the world that have ever cared, which is Islam, Christianity, and the new atheism. (laughs) And I think when you saw people like uh, Michael Shermer and Richard Dawkins respond to uh, Ian's kind of announcement, you got to see that they are a proselytizing religion as well. And they are very, very disappointed that one of their own has defected. So um, I thought her article, I wonder whether the pace of the article was forced by the ARC conference that she spoke at maybe two weeks before that a conference that, that you were at, Louise, and I, I was there as a punter. And um, Jordan Peterson at that point sort of seemed to out her a little bit. And interestingly, she was sitting between two Christians. And the, to- the topic of the panel conversation was all about the better story that we can tell in the West. And we've kind of gotten cut off from our roots. And how do we restore a sense of, of self in the West? And actually, the two people on either side of her, there was John Anderson, who is a, a Christian and a, and a big sort of YouTuber. Now he, he was the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And Oz Guinness, author of dozens and dozens of, of books and 
Uh, he is with Jordan Peterson on his sort of Exodus series on, on the Daily Wire, but he is also a Christian. So she's, she's flanked by two Christians, neither of whom are naming Christianity as the foundation of the West. And yet Ayan was the one who constantly was sort of pointing back to, no, there is a, she first on, she, she first up says, um, Christianity is at the root of these things. And then she sort of corrects herself and she does the sort of civilizational speak and says the Judeo-Christian worldview. Interesting that her first instinct was to say the root of our civilization is Christianity. And then Jordan Peterson kind of outs her and her husband a little bit by saying, um, I know that you and your husband are on a bit of a spiritual journey, aren't you? And she sort of comes out a little bit on stage at the art conference in front of 1,500 people. And then two weeks later, she writes the article for Unheard, Why I Am Now a Christian, which is uh, a play on Bertrand Russell's article, Why I Am Not a Christian. And both on stage at ARC and in this article, she, she mentions Tom Holland many times. Um, and in the article, you know, she talks about the marvelous or the marvelous or the wonderful Tom Holland and the, the wonderful book Dominion. And, and I think that's clearly um, been a, a massive part in whatever spiritual journey that she's on, which frames what she means by civilizational Christianity. I don't think she's just a, a kind of a neocon reactionary who is clinging on to Christianity to make some political points. There's been a lot of cynical kind of re reaction to Ion on Twitter and people saying, you know, they rephrase her entire argument. Why I'm a Christian? Geopolitics. You're like, no, it's not. It's not that. She's, she's on the Tom Holland train and she is noticing that she is already a believer in all sorts of things, all sorts of liberal values and human rights and equality and compassion and all sorts of things. And she's, she's pulling at the threads of the beliefs she already has and coming to see that there is something foundational to them in, you might say the Judeo-Christian tradition, you might say Christianity, you might say Jesus. <laughs> um, and certainly on my side of things, there are lots of Christians saying, why doesn't she just name Jesus? And she's not, she's not being sufficiently clear about her Christianity. And all those Christians are missing the fact that on a public stage, the two Christians on either side of her didn't name Jesus either. <laughs> um, she, she's actually um, come out with articulating the better story in a lot more Christian sense than a lot of the Christians who are at the art conference. I, I think she's doing beautifully as a public witness for Christianity right now. And what I love about it is she finishes the article by saying, I learn a little bit more each Sunday as I go to church. And what I love about that is that she is not, she's not like a neocon coming in and saying, if you want to be really anti-woke, I guess you better come into the church and here are 17 things the church needs to do to up its game, right? About standing against the madness out there. She's not doing that at all. And her whole posture seems to be, I'm learning a little bit more each Sunday. And that, that warms the cockles of, of, of my heart. So yeah. What, how, how did you respond to Ion? I also was quite uh, prickled by some of the more unwelcoming takes that I saw from some Christians, which were, um, as you say, basically accusing her of being cynical in her conversion, which I don't think there was any, there was no indication in anything she wrote that she was being cynical. I think there was an indication, and actually there was a, a very interesting essay about this um, uh, on 
uh, Pascal Emmanuel Gobri's Substack, which I shared on Twitter, um, that she was leading less with the uh, leading less with the sort of belief in the metaphysical and leading more with the uh, the the respect for the culture that Christianity has created. And for some people that was considered suspect, but the point that Gobri made, which I thought was very good, is that actually that idea of um, emotional conversion is, 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 is one, very Protestant, and two, relatively, of relatively recent vintage. The idea that of actually Christianity being something that you, that you do, you go to church, you behave as a Christian, you know, you, you, you perform your religion outwardly, as being the primary thing is probably a more traditional way of regarding conversion rather than this kind of intimate relationship with Christ. You know, you could have an intimate relationship with Christ and never go to church according to that kind of um, view of it. And you would be just as sincere a Christian as anyone else, which I thought was very interesting. And I also found, as I mentioned on Twitter, I also found sort of um, reassuring because as I've said on um, this podcast several times, you know, I'm, I'm probably, uh, religious but not spiritual that's probably the best way of describing my relationship with Christianity even Nick Cave you know, I, yeah yeah right like yeah. I I share um Ian's um wonder at the sort of achievements of Christian civilization and I share what you describe in the air we breathe as these kind of fundamental Christian ideas which are so fundamental that we don't even see them for being Christian you know the idea that mercy is good the idea that um, the weak should be protected not persecuted all these kind of things which uh, seem to be so, so, so fundamental to western morality but are in fact derived from Christianity you know that that's all true what I don't have is that feeling of having a a personal relationship with Christ? I don't. I that that I have I have looked for that emotional spark and I haven't found it. Which doesn't mean that I won't ever find it, but it does mean that you know, like at this point, I can't say I've never had whether I had this conversation with a friend recently actually about whether or not it would be it would be wonderful to have a, a Damascene conversion. Um, I thought it might be to have that that like incredible moment of certainty. She thought it would be terrible. <laughs> she says <laughs> as, a, as a pious Catholic, because she's like, no, it would turn your life completely upside down, <laughs> and it would be terrifying and awful. No, thank you. But like, you know, for better or worse, I've not had. I I don't I don't feel that emotional thing that so many people, so many Christians apparently feel, and I found it sort of reassuring to read. Gobri's account of it and say actually maybe that's not what matters maybe wanting to be a Christian and behaving as a Christian is what matters yeah I mean so like in the Bible there are two um, conversions that happen on a road and one of them is the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and there's a great bright shining light as Paul is about to drag off some some Christians to, to prison because he's a, a Pharisee and he's trying to like stop this incipient Christian movement and the road to Damascus is an intervention <laughs> in the most dramatic sense and he's converted on the spot that's a Damascene conversion um, but there's another famous road uh, of conversion and it's the the Sunday Easter Sunday and there's a there's a couple um, who are walking back to Emmaus, a town outside uh, Jerusalem. And on the road to Emmaus, it's this beautiful scene where Jesus shows up incognito, and 
he just starts this conversation with them. And it's, it's just, it warms the cockles of my heart. Just to, just to, I, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about Jesus pretending not to be Jesus for a bit. <laughs> and, and just eavesdropping in on a conversation with these two who had followed Jesus and then he gets crucified. And then they think, well, Jesus is dead and buried. The movement is over. Back to Emmaus for us. Um, and he starts a conversation with them and they say, are you only a visitor to, to town before you, you don't understand what's going on with Jesus? <laughs> and then Jesus himself says, what things? What's, what's happened this weekend? And he gets them to sort of have the, this conversation. And then he says, but isn't this what was meant to happen according to the scriptures? Wasn't the Christ meant to sort of suffer first and then rise again from the dead? And, you know, nothing changes at that moment either. And then there's this beautiful line where it says, this is in Luke chapter 24, if anyone wants to look it up. And there's this wonderful moment where they get to their house and Jesus, it says Jesus like um, made like he was intending to go on. And then they invite him in <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, if you, if you, if you insist, I'll come in, come on inside. And then Jesus sits down and he has a meal with them and then they break bread. And as he prays, and it's this very sacramental moment, like the night before he died, where he says, this is my body given for you. As the bread is broken, their eyes are opened and Jesus disappears from their sights. And then they say, ah, oh, did not our hearts burn within us while we were on the road? And I just find that fascinating because um, it's a it's a long, slow burn. I mean, it, it, it happened over a matter of hours, but I think sort of in terms of the pattern of what is going on, it's nothing like the Damascus Road. It, it involves, you know, Jesus kind of incognito coming up and, and coming alongside people. And I've always loved that idea in... Um, uh, oh, which, which of the Narnia books is it where, where Aslan... Um, talks to somebody about, um, it's the horse and his boy, isn't it? Where um, you get the idea that there might be some lions that are after him. And at points that it feels like there are two lions after him. And it's only at the end of the story that, that Aslan kind of says, you know, I, I was that lion and I was that lion and I was that lion and I was that lion. I was in the scary parts and I was in the, the wonderful parts. And it's that, that incognito sense of, of, of Jesus. And I, I wonder whether the idea of compassion for the weak and lifting up the the lowly and and the inviolable worth and dignity of all people and, and those sorts of things are ways in which Jesus is kind of incognito with you on the journey. And then there is that sense of the the scriptures and saying, oh no, but you know, don't the scriptures frame your understanding of everything that's going on? And then that sense, and certainly in the more sacramental churches, they're quite right to um notice that it's when the bread is broken um, that their eyes are opened and then they recognize their hearts were burning way back on the road. And I, I think more sacramental churches, and I'm, I'm an Anglican, so I, I try to have the best of both worlds. It's, it's sort of an ancient church. Um, I'm more evangelical in the flavor of Anglicanism that, that I am. Um, but there is that sense of that there's the scriptures and there's the walking with Jesus, but there's also just the tangible sense of sitting down and going through motions because we are embodied creatures and we were made for motions and motions are, are not inauthentic um, just because our hearts are not burning in the moment. 
And so, yeah, so I always encourage people, you, you don't need to necessarily have a road to Damascus. Most people do not have a road to Damascus. Most people, even in the Bible, they're much more a road to Emmaus. It's much more a slow burn, I would, I would think. Or indeed a recognition, as Ian describes, and as, you know, Tom Holland describes and you described of of realizing that actually you were sort of Christian all along, maybe not in the the, the belief in the metaphysics, but belief in the the moral ideas, the the, the the worldview, all of that. You know that that is so so deeply Christian without us even realizing it. Although I mean, this is a um, it's something I've written about a little bit and thought about a lot. The extent to which that is still true in what we might want to call progressivism or wokeism there clearly are very very strong christian themes in progressivism i mean if nothing else just the whole idea of progress right is is drawn from drawn from a christian worldview the arc of the moral universe yada yada um but it also seems to me that progressivism for some reason which well, hopefully we might get on to is very vulnerable to being sort of paganized. So like, I wrote this piece for First Things a few months ago about um, abortion and the importance of abortion to Christianity in the sense that prizing the vulnerable, protecting the vulnerable from the very beginning as an extremely important Christian principle and Christians right from the beginning were um, objected to infanticide and abortion in the Roman world and that that has persisted ever since. And so basically, therefore, if you um, if you move to legalise abortion, particularly late-term abortion and so on, you are, in a sense, rejecting Christian doctrine. And so when people argue about abortion, what they're really arguing about is Christianity and whether we should remain, whether Christianity should, re should remain the state religion. Um, and progressivism is clearly indebted to Christian ideas in some sense, but progressivism is also extremely pro-choice mm -hmm. and, and extremely pro-euthanasia and all sorts of other things which are really, really not okay <laughs> within the sort of orthodox yeah. Christian framework. What yeah. do you think is going on there in terms of <laughs> the evident inconsistencies um, mm. within this kind of, I don't know, is it, is it, is it, is it that progressivism, having lost the grounding of the church, has become kind of open to disintegration, or is, yeah. is there some other yeah. some yeah. other explanation for? Well, I, th I think so. I talk in in the air we breathe about seven values of the kingdom, which are kind of the the fruit of the Jesus revolution, which are things like equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. But I think detached from their very well their done remembering all your chapters, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> done this before. Um, <laughs> eat my first rodeo, and so that those those seven values, and that's the thing they're, they're sort of fruit of a, a specific gospel that goes out to the world but you detach it from its roots and then they just become values that stand over you and they become detached from the story in which they make sense there's a story and there's a moral to the story and the moral are you know these seven values and many more um, but to detach it from the story you just end up with the morals and then you just end up with moralism and um, I quote in the book, there's a, a famous Baptist preacher in the 19th century called C.H. Spurgeon. And uh, he said, if you are half a Christian, you'll be the most miserable creature in the world. 
um, because you will get all the values, but you won't get actually the Jesus who is the source of those values. And you won't get the, the one who can forgive you when you fail at mm. those values, because that's absolutely fundamental mm. to Christianity. It's not that you have values that you live out. It's that you realize that you fall short of those values. But if values are, the, are, are at the top of the hierarchy, values cannot forgive you. Values can only judge you. Um, you need a person in order to forgive you. Only persons forgive. And if you kind of dethrone Christ and enthrone the values, then you have what G.K. Chesterton called the, the, the Christian virtues run amok. And what we have nowadays is these Christian virtues run amok. And I, I mentioned like the, the first three virtues um, of equality, compassion, and consent. I think um, Christianity gave, gave us this sense of there is no, no longer any male or female or Jew or Greek or slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. But you detach that from the story and it's less like we are all equally welcome around the same table. It's more like we are all individuals who have a right to be equally far up our own individual ladders. And like... Larry Seidentop is this um, political philosopher who sort of w was one of the inspirations for the air we breathe. Um, but he talks about the invention of the individual and absolutely sort of Christendom invented the individual in the sense that we understand the individual in, in modern Western society. But therefore, Christians are also on the hook for inventing individualism and, and all that atomization. And so equality becomes individualism. And then the second virtue I talk about is compassion. And we've learnt from the parable of the Good Samaritan that we are not meant to walk on by, that the, the guy beaten up by the side of the road is our brother too and is our neighbor too, and we are meant to love that person and show compassion for that person. But in a society that actually does prize victims so much, um, sometimes we don't want to help victims, sometimes we just want to be victims. And then you get competitive victimhood. And then the third, the third um, value that I talk about in the book is consent, especially in the sexual realm. And that you know the first sexual revolution was was nineteen hundred years before the swinging sixties. And Christianity absolutely gave to the world that the sense that um, there is a an inviolability to wills and bodies that must not be violated, and that the rightness or wrongness of a sexual act. Is, is not about the social standing of the person you're having sex with, but, um, but in and of themselves, even if she is a concubine or a slave or a prostitute or the scullery maid, whoever she is, an elite man does not have the right to, um, to sexual conquest and consent is put right at the heart of the sexual relationship. Now divorce that from Christianity and again, you, well, nowadays, consent is pr pretty much the only virtue that we, we are clinging on to in the sexual realm. And so choice in sexual matters becomes absolutely primary. So now you weave those three things back together. You've got radical individualism, you've got competitive victimhood, and you've got choice as king in the sexual realm. And you've, you've got the madness that we see all around us. And it's a madness that is unthinkable without the Christian revolution. It's a madness that uses a lot of Christian phrases and uses the cachet that Christianity has given to those phrases, but they are being wielded for, for very pagan ends and, and just on abortion as well. I mean, you're right. You couldn't think of a, a less Christian thing 
than infanticide or, or, or abortion in, in that sense, because they are the weakest, the least, the last, and the lost among us. We not, must preserve and protect them um, and not cast them off, even though it's a human universal, really. <laughs> like infanticide pretty much is a human universal. You know, Tacitus noticed a couple of German tribes that didn't practice it, and that was noteworthy to him. He <laughs> was like, what? You don't kill your girls? You don't kill your disabled? That's weird. Um, because Jews, Jews and Christians had always stood against infanticide, and, and I think it's a profoundly Christian thing to do. Now, what's interesting is that on the pro-choice side of things, even though they're arguing for what I would think is, is a kind of infanticide by extension, they're using profoundly Christian language to do it. They are foregrounding choice and consent. And, and which, which comes from that, that consent thing. And they, they are foregrounding its health care. Well, you know, who invented the hospitals, right? <laughs> they, they're foregrounding the equality of the sexes and women's rights and, and the bodily autonomy um, of the woman and all those sorts of things. And so what has happened with Christianization is, you know, I might wish as a Christian that the Christianization had gone um, more deeply, more thoroughly. It has definitely done a number on us in terms of our moral intuitions at a surface level and the language that we use, even as we are going down certain pagan routes, we can't help but do so with Christian-ish justification. Um, and, and again, you know, as a, as a Christian, you won't be surprised to learn, I, I, I think the answer is to, you know, return to Jesus, return to the story, and let's surrender ourselves to that. But we are this strange mixture of Protestant and pagan. And I've, I've got a podcast with Andrew Wilson uh, called Post-Christianity. And people can check out, we've got, we've got an episode on, on this sort of interplay of the the West, the, the modern, late modern, 21st century West is a kind of this, this weird mixture of, of Protestant and pagan. Yes, I think that's true. It's a good point about uh, the, the, the defences of abortion. What you will almost never hear is anyone defending um, the pro-choice position by saying that um, unwanted infants are worthless, you know, that there's something despicable and disposable about a disabled child or whatever what you will hear more often is to say that they're not infants mm. right yep. Yep. <laughs> because they're unborn which is not which is absolutely not say the roman justification for infanticide yeah. and abortion it's the yeah. it's that it's like practically expedient to dispose of unwanted children not that there are in some sense not children so yeah you're right that it's been justified within a christian framework ditto euthanasia people will say that it's a merciful thing to do euthanasia not that not that sick and disabled people are a drain on resources and a waste of space you know which would be the more sort of authentically yeah, pagan. pragmatic and realistic yes. and yeah simply darwinian um yeah yeah, yeah. i think that uh, the line that that um either you or andrew used on the post-christian uh, on that on that on that episode about protestantism and paganism which i thought was great was um uh you know if you're a christian being beaten with a stick that is, you know, you're not being merciful enough, you're not being equal enough, whatever it is, you're in a sense being beaten by your own stick, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yes, yeah, so the, the, your, your political opponents are using your own terms against you, which, you know, in a sense is a sort of vindication of the terms themselves, even if you are being beaten up in the moment. What's more difficult, of course, is people who don't hold to those values at all. One of the things that I worry about in terms of the, the future of, the future of, de-Christianization, um, if it continues as it is, you know, I don't actually think that progressivism or wokeism or whatever is is the key threat to Christianity. Because as 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 you say, it, it is 
we're still they still basically have the same moral framework as Christians, even if it's confused. Um, in a sense, actually, like progressives are almost Herodotus at the gates, like <laughs> like defending these principles of equality and mercy and so on against against ideologies that don't value those at all you know I'm partly thinking about some kind of futurist transhumanist stuff that say Mary Harrington writes about which really doesn't which really doesn't see a line that Mary Harrington is as 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 written somewhere um which I think about a lot is um you know it's relatively easy to persuade the post-Christian right if we want to call them that people who hold to right-wing ideas but uh, uh, really don't sign up to the Christian moral framework, it's easy enough to persuade them not to create monsters through um, biotech. You know, They tend not to be in favour of, say, sex reassignment surgeries because, because it, it, it seems to be so sort of self-evidently bad for the people who undergo them. What's hard, though, is to persuade them not to create supermen mm-hmm. yeah. and to use biotech as a form of enhancement which very quickly leads to some very sort of it, it quickly leads to some very unchristian places in terms of um, deeply hierarchical and, and and radical and kind of warring against nature and all this kind of stuff you know that that is on the horizon and I don't feel as though many progressives are even looking at that <laughs> like they're kind of facing backwards and not even thinking about the much more fundamental threats to ideas like equality and mercy to which which they share with Christians. Yes. Yeah. So there's a famous um, kind of little clip from Yuval Noah Harari's TED talk where in the Q and A he, he is asked, so he, he, he wrote sapiens about, you know, our, our history, our evolutionary history to date, and then Homodeus about, you know, how we might continue to evolve past Homo sapiens and become Homodeus. And in the Q and A uh, of this TED talk, that was kind of a summary of, of sapiens, um, he, he was asked, you know, with all the techno- technological changes, you know, what, what should be the future um, for those who, who can't keep pace with the technological change? And he just said, you know, drugs and computer games should keep them happy. And that's, that seems to be the best, you know, the best answer yeah. for them. And fascinatingly... The, the Matrix, basically. Tr- yeah, The Matrix. Why not? And, or Aldous Huxley. Yeah. Just, just, yeah, like, let's have a brave new world. And... and um, during his talk, he um, at this TED talk, he he says um, uh, human rights are just are not found as a biological reality. They are just found in the stories that we have told. Those stories might be great stories, um, but they are just stories that involve the gods. And it and he's very clear, certainly in Sapiens, that it, it, it's from the Christian from the Bible that we get this this sense of humanity made in God's image and that's where we got the idea of, of human rights and when we get rid of the God story we're going to get rid of the, the 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 human rights story as well and at that stage what people then want to do is they, they want to say oh no we can grant ourselves rights we can grant ourselves dignity can't we at which point you want to ask who's we and the very dystopian answer to that is like whoever has the technological will and power to do it, <laughs> they have the right to confer on whatever subset of, of um, biological reality <laughs> the, the, the pinnacle of, you know, and, and they can grant themselves those, those rights and the rest of us can take the highmost. So 
on what on what grounds can we say that humanity as such has value? And I honestly, I honestly can't come up with a better answer than God the human, who takes humanity to himself and through the cross and resurrection raises it up and and puts humanity at the at the top of the the hierarchy and puts humanity as such human nature as such because he takes our nature and therefore you you can't sort of d- divide up human nature into you know the homo deus and homo sapiens and and and, and have those concentric circles of meaning if you have humanity as such taken up by by somebody who is beyond the human and therefore if if it, if human rights are in the hands of anyone that is human themselves then they have the right to narrow the circle <laughs> um only if you've got god the human actually do i think you have the 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 philosophical grounding for any kind of humanism whatsoever and so even as a christian i'm i'm absolutely a humanist <laughs> and and I think a massive argument moving forwards with all sorts of dystopian futures open to us is like, what is the human? And is there, is there a future for the human? And some Christians might hear me say that and say, oh, Glenn's leaving aside his Christianity. I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm actually pointing to the, the, one, the one hope we've got for a humanism that is actually, that actually honors all those to the very fringes of, of human society. And at that point, I, I start to sound quite a quite like a fundamentalist because I'm saying it's a kind of Christ or the pit. It's like you go you go with this Jesus thing, or you go to some very to to my way of thinking some some very hellish alternatives. It sounds quite fundamentalist, but I but I do think philosophically that that's where we're at. It's it's Christ or the pit. Yeah, I find those alternatives instinctively hellish as well, which I think speaks of my own. Christian assumptions you know even if as we've discussed I don't I whether or not I kind of emotionally completely sign up to the metaphysics of it I do sign up to the view that actually there's something very terrifying about abandoning yeah that humanistic idea which is not yeah humanism is not the counterpart to Christianity right it's just it's 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 not at all obvious to people from non-Christian cultures that these things that we feel to be instinctively true are true not at all um, and I, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the, I mean, Ian, uh, going back to talking about Ian Hashiali, I mean, she, she writes of Tom Holland's book Dominion as being a very, very important in her Christian conversion because it is, because it is, it is a revelatory book to people who, who, um, don't recognize how deep seated these Christian ideas are. Um, Tom's coming on the podcast in the new year, by the way. Right. Um, yeah, we'll, we will, we will get into such things. Now he's probably sick to death of talking about Dominion, so I, <laughs> I might have mercy on him. <laughs> um, talk about Pax instead, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can talk yeah. about the Romans instead. Another fear that I have, you know, given 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 the 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 given our shared assumptions about the fundamental Christian ideas being good ones, is that Christianity's. Uh, is that there are certain elements within Christian framework which are vulnerable to tearing down the edifice accidentally, right? So we've spoken about individualism as 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 a um, consequence of Christianity and individualism being a challenge to Christianity in its most extreme form. Something I also worry about is Christian compassion, the Christian commitment to the Good Samaritan story, leading to 
actually the the destruction of Christian Christendom through mass migration. You know where I'm headed with this. You know, I'm thinking of Douglas Murray's writings on a strange death of Europe, which is now like a decade old or something, um, where he's been largely vindicated in the sense that Christian mercy shown towards people who want to come to Europe is not a, you know, it's not a, I want to say it's not a bad thing in that the instinct is a good one, but the potential consequences of it longer term are really do pose an existential threat to Christianity. I mean, that's my view of it. I don't know if you agree, but that it, it's another example of that, the, the, of elements within Christianity, which are potentially present almost a sort of autoimmune disease threat mm-hmm. mm. to the, yeah. to the religion yeah. itself. Yeah. Yes. I mean, uh, because compassion is, is, it's not, it doesn't yet rise to the, um, to the level of a virtue. It's, it's more an instinct, isn't it? Compassion. Um, it, I mean, it, it certainly is the, the number one way that Jesus' emotional life is described in, in the Gospels. It's this word splagthani, which is related to the word for spleen. Like we get the word spleen from, it's this gut-wrenching pity, this mercy. And the number one way of describing the emotional life of Jesus is that he had gut-wrenching pity and compassion. And that's what the Good Samaritan felt when he saw the, uh, the man by the side of the road. Um, but you can't... You, you cannot yet design a morality around a feeling. Um, you've got a lot more work ahead of you to do that. I was, I was walking my daughter to school the other day and um, it had just rained and there was a slug on the pavement. And um, my daughter said, oh, daddy, quick, save the slug, save the slug. I was like, what do you want me to do? She said, well, we'll just pick him up and put him on the grass. So I was like, okay, well, you could. Why don't, why don't you pick him up? And she said, ew, he's disgusting. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I was like, well, okay. This is interesting. You want it, how much compassion do you have? <laughs> like, like, what, what's that? And there's the, there's the compassion of an eight-year-old and, and bless her cotton socks. <laughs> like she she like very much wants to show pity and and she had some kind of you know gut-wrenching feeling but at some stage you've got to kind of roll up your sleeves and do (laughs) um do the dirty work as well if you are going to actually um help the situation and i remember i remember i was um i even wrote about this like at oxford i did i i did i did the blaggers degree at oxford ppe politics philosophy and economics at um yeah at a kind of quite right on kind of college. And I remember even writing in uh, an article on uh, an essay on politics about how Margaret Thatcher once commented on the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. She said, the thing you notice about the Good Samaritan is he couldn't have done any of that if he didn't have money. And I still remember hearing that as an undergraduate and thinking, oh, you witch, how could, how could you? <laughs> like, and now I'm 45 years old. <laughs> I'm <starting> to, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes. I'm starting to see that actually she do, it's not just a clever point that the, the Good Samaritan had to have the money to pay for the hotel and, and like take care of the guy. There's actually a theological point there too because ultimately the, the Good Samaritan is a portrait of Christ and his compassion on us who are in the, in the gutter. And it does take someone from on high to stoop you can't stoop if you're in the gutter um 
you've got to have a certain sense of strength in order to offer compassion. I can't turn the other cheek to you from weakness. Like the, the weak thing to do, actually just to be to run and hide. Um, I, can't, I can't prefer you to me. I, ca I can't let you through the door. I, ca I can't even say, you know, after me, if it's not that I'm actually first in line, right? <laughs> like like the, the exercise of Christian virtues um, actually re requires a certain strength and re requires a certain position, requires certain resources in order to, to do them. Um, and I, I don't think the Christian position on immigration is, is simply, you know, to have open borders and to, to say to the world, you know, whatever is written on the bottom of the uh, Statue of Liberty, come you weak, you poor, you huddled masses. And um, that's a lovely, that is a lovely instinct. And I think there are some Christian origins to it, but it's a li little bit like my daughter saying, um, can you save the slug? <laughs> like, yes, I'd, I'd like to. It will require more from us. <laughs> than simply to have that feeling. Now, on the actual demographic thing, I think it will be interesting what immigration does to Britain. London, for instance, um, the London Diocese within the Church of England is one of the only parts of the Church of England that's growing. Mm, and a lot that's of that's true. to do with, with immigration. Yeah. Um, and I think there will be parts of Europe and parts of North America that are um, quite Christianized by immigration from parts of sub-Saharan Africa, which are going gangbusters in terms of, you know, gospel and conversions. So there'll be, there'll be some parts that are um, very much more Christianized and some parts that are very much more Islamicized. <laughs> and then you're like, oh gosh, it will be a very different Britain um, in, the, in the coming decades. Um, but, I, but I think you're absolutely right. The, the Christian position on immigration is, is, is not simply to have an open border and let let absolutely everybody in, and I, and I and I think Christians need need to to hear that as much as others. I go to a few different churches in a slightly like haphazard way, partly because as we were talking about before um, um, we started the recording, um, we're moving house soon, so I'm kind of like I don't want to like fully invest in a church only to move house. But anyway, that's another story. But um, one of the churches I take my son to quite regularly is um, charismatic Anglican, and it's 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 a great church and it's great for kids and he really enjoys it. And if I tell him we're going to church, he says, Oh, the, the church with a slide. Cause it's got a really great slide in the crash. And as far as he's concerned, like <laughs> that's a great day out. So I thought, okay, fine. I mean, if he, <laughs> I want him to enjoy himself. But anyway, it, this is a church we often go to. And I actually found after the um, 7th of October attacks in um, Israel, I couldn't bring myself to go that day. And the reason I couldn't bring myself to go is because I really didn't want to hear a sermon about forgiveness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought yeah. that I might. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I actually found that moment. I was like, I cannot, the, for all of the, um, for all that I agree with the Christian in instincts towards um, mercy and compassion. I also want Christians to defend I also think that that necessitates defending the weak from those who would destroy the weak you know right and yeah. I think I think all too often in some in kind of the liberal end of Christianity that gets forgotten and it's and it's and it's and it's exclusively turn the other cheek and it's ex exclusively you know be welcoming to 
you know, whatever, provide like a British passport to Hamas leaders living in London on taxpayers, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating, but like not by much. There is that end of liberal Christianity, which is so almost self-abnegating, like almost, almost welcoming actually the, those who despise Christian virtues. And it, it, and it, I find I and I that's actually it's funny like normally normally the the um, Church of England in particular is so eager to sort of be more and more liberal in an attempt to attract um 31 year olds like me whereas I'm actually like no I'm I'm too conservative for you guys like please have some balls it's it's almost what like I'm crying out for for some Christian churches but I mean you can see why there's the conflict like the the gospels are not clear on this question at least from my reading of it like there, there is an enormous room for um, for doubt and for debate on many of these questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that time in Luke's gospel where they say, we've got a couple of swords and Jesus says, that's enough. Um, and and like, does he mean that's enough of violence or does he mean eh, two swords will do? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and certainly, and the, and the church kind of had it out in the early centuries and, and the consensus in the early church um, seems to go very strongly towards pacifism while, while Christianity was absolutely a minority. Um, but come, come Constantine, um, you know, post-Constantine, you, you get people like Augustine who have it out intellectually about um, just war as opposed to pacifism. And um, yeah, it, it and, and I, I, I think there's a, there's a sort of a, um, there's a there's a backbone and a spine to um, Augustine's views on on just war and you know when force is necessary, um, but it's it is tempered by the just war tradition in which Augustine kind of invents really, um, in which compassion can be shown within war, right? <laughs> there is a just way, and you you don't torture or execute your prisoners of war and there's a just cause for war and there's justice within war and there's all sorts of but you can still go to war <laughs> says augustine and but I, I i totally get that i i was on twitter i saw um it's quite a, a progressive vicar who retweeted um some street preachers and it seemed to me like the street preachers might might have come from outside the UK and there was there's one black guy kind of preaching Jesus to a bunch of pro Hamas supporters and he was saying like Jesus is the true peace Jesus is the true peace but this quite prog progressive vicar just said um little do these preachers know that Christianity was behind the colonization that is at the, the cause of you know <laughs> um all, all this all this problem and you and you're like and what was interesting to me is that Actually, the street preachers um, are very robustly courageous in proclaiming peace to pro-Palestinian marchers, um, and they want to see conversion of those pro-Palestinian marchers, um, and they're not going along with Tommy Robinson to kind of, you know, be stronger than them. They're, they're doing a kind of a turn-the-other-cheek thing, and to me, to me, the, the coward is the progressive vicar. And there's a robustness to the compassion and the cheek-turning love of the street preacher who, however foolishly we might, we might think, is sort of meeting a pro-Palestine protest with the simplicity of preaching. Um, 
but I, I think there is there is robustness to turning the other cheek. Um, that it's not it's not strike back and it's not run away. And I think that's one thing that people get wrong about turning the other cheek. It's 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 not cowering away and it's not lashing back. There's a there's an immense uh, strength to standing full square and saying you struck me once and it it hasn't done what you thought it would do, has it? Now let's deal with this this relationship. There's a, there's a robustness to turning the other cheek, and I I think you know street preachers kind of can model it. And what, what, one other thing is is you're absolutely right that you know my my thesis in the book is about the Christianization of culture, but what you're pointing to here is very much culture washes back the other way to the church, <laughs> and and the church needs to be very wary of picking up the compassion that has been handed to us by a world that has divorced compassion from its gospel roots. And the, the, the church is in all sorts of danger of picking up anti-Christian ideas of compassion and then reflecting them back to the world. Yeah. And in, yes. And in doing so, you know, it, it seems, it seems to me, not that I'm running PR for the church of England, although, you know, my emails are open that people who, progressives who have decided not to go to church are not going to be persuaded by the church wooing them by being more progressive because what they don't like what they explicitly reject is the whole idea of tradition you know it's this like perpetual revolution that's built into the progressive ideology like there, there just isn't a scenario i think in which they're going to sign up to a 2000 year old tradition of any kind because that's that's like anathema to the worldview so it just seems like you're on an absolute hiding to nothing in attempting to 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 woo that group you know far better to say actually there is there is clearly something I think this was the line in um Gobri's piece that we discussed at the beginning that you know to look at a Christian cathedral or at Christian science you know this you you have this chapter right in the book on 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 why actually scientific methods owes a great deal to christianity you know to look at all of these western cultural achievements and to admire them is in some sense to recognize a, a profound truth in christianity there must be something fundamentally true about an ideology that has produced all of that you know that i think is the much more persuasive argument for people who have strayed from the church not trying to forget or reject all of that or oh god there was a I was looking uh, <laughs> appropriately enough um hang on let me start that again without blaspheming <laughs> <laughs> you are forgiven there go tears <laughs> um I was looking at a church recently um f- for when we moved and I was, kind of, I was like you know shopping around on the church websites to see which would be um good churches to try going to and um I was quite interested in a particular church and then I looked at a, a, a page they had on recommended reading. One of the books that they recommended was a book called um, Can White People Be Saved? Right. And I was immediately like, I am not bringing my children to this church. Yeah. I just, yeah. I'm, no, <laughs> no. Like any, I mean, the answer, in it, having read the blurb, the answer is like a reluctant yes. Okay. <laughs> this book. Okay. I just thought I do, I, I do not want to. Yes, like the, the 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 efforts of that kind of end of Christianity to to woo that kind of 
I think really potentially dangerous and destructive ideology. It just it just seems like a terrible direction for the church to to church to go in. Yeah, no, completely is completely is, and and because I think it's it's pretty straightforward to uncover the racism of what is purporting to be anti-racist. Um, and, and again, yeah, so I, I, I think it's, it's not because they're trying to be hyper-Christian. It's, yeah, they, they've re-racialized things in, in ways that are absolutely, you know, setting off your Christian spidey sense right there in, in completely the right way. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. We come back to the fact that we've kind of been, you know, been hit with your own stick, right? The reason that we find a book titled Can White People Be Saved? unpalatable is because we think that there's something wrong about um racializing religion in that in that way yeah yeah in christ there is no more barbarian scythian slave or free but we are all one in christ jesus that was the thought you had and that's why i'm always saying you know <laughs> like all all our little spidey senses are, are profoundly christian we've, we've just forgotten the bible references is it your line or, or tom holland's that um we're all competing for who gets to be on the cross you know that's the that's the kind of that's the victim. <laughs> That's the. But I, I am well, thrilled to be a, a part it. of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're all. Com That's what the kind of victimhood politics is all about. You know, it all comes. Yes, competitive comes victimhood and the oppression Olympics. Yeah, yeah, that completely that completely happens. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about three, two, one? Because this Go is on, your, um, yeah, your, <laughs> your, your new initiative. Do you want to explain to uh, listeners who haven't come across it what it's about and who it's and who it's who it's aimed at? I suppose as well. Yeah. So if people start to pull at the threads in an Ayan Hirsi Ali sort of way, in which they think, oh, I think the world has been built in a Christian kind of way, and I think my moral intuitions and sensibilities have been calibrated to the Christian story. It's it's an opportunity just to have a fresh look at the Christian story. And so, um, yeah, it's Jesus' vision for the world. And so if you just start with Jesus, this remarkable person who, in the words of Tom Holland, he's, he is the revolutionary who's brought about the, the most diverse, the most inclusive. No, no, what does he say? D-I-A. He says, Christianity is the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in human history. And this is just the, op the opportunity to check him out and figure out... Um, yeah. What, what is his vision for God? What is his vision for the world? What is his vision for you? And it starts by looking at his vision for God. And he thinks of himself as the son of the father, full of the spirit. And so that's about the threeness of God, um, Trinity sort of thing. And then his view of the world, he sees himself as the second Adam coming to put humanity right and take responsibility for the world. And so that's the two-ness of the world. And then oneness is all about you. You know, you are you are made for a oneness with Jesus. And we sort of explore that through all sorts of, you know, interesting illustrations and analogies and, uh, and animations. And uh, it's completely free and people can check it out at uh, 321course.com. How does it compare with Alpha? What's the different strategy of the two? One thing is you can do it entirely online and it's, it's sort of made for a digital market because 
the way anyone explores anything these days is you fall down a YouTube hole or you binge some documentaries on Netflix or you listen to podcasts or, you know, um, the way people find anything, whether it's a plumber or whether it's, you know, um, a car mechanic or whether it's God is they Google it. And, and so we're, we're trying to have something that really makes sense as an online resource um, that goes at your own pace and there's an online chat community that's attached to it. And there's a little bit of branching narrative that can happen. If you want to ask, you know, ask a question, there's a ask Glenn anything kind of monthly meetup and that sort of thing. And um, if you want to read part of John's gospel, um, in conjunction with doing the course, there's sort of an app that helps you to do that. So it's it's digitally savvy, um, but in a sense, you know, Alpha is kind of a Christianity 101, and this is a kind of a Christianity 101. And um, this is this is done really for the creatively minded person because we're just immersing people in a whole bunch of stories and saying, imagine you're on a space station and you have no idea how you got there. What are you now thinking? And as soon as you sort of disorient people enough, uh, I think you can then tell them a, a, a cool story. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much.